Hey, everybody, welcome and welcome back to episode four of our installment, talking all about pregnancy and motherhood and everything in between. My name is Samantha. I'm so glad and grateful to have you here with us. And I am with Kevin and Mike from Microscope. Guys, how are you doing? Hey, we're doing good. Thanks for having us again. I'm doing fantastic. <laughs> are you or are you going to fall asleep? <laughs> I'll survive. I'll okay, survive. Good. I'm so glad. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about life after labor. You get through your pregnancy somehow, and you know you make it out more or less in one piece, and then after 48 hours in a hospital, they say, okie dokie, well, it was nice to meet you, congratulations, now get the fuck out. So <laughs> I want to talk about some of the things that you really can come to expect after giving birth and why exactly they happen and what you can do to help yourself. The first is postpartum depression, which um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure everyone is familiar with that, but basically it's a state of depression that moms and in some cases dads can have sympathy reactions to it, but we'll just talk about the women uh, that moms experience. And um it's due to it's due to a lot of things. It's due to a huge fluctuation of hormones and your chemical imbalance and, and all this other stuff. But I want to really talk about like what exactly it is that triggers all of this so that we can understand, again, from a scientific standpoint, what the hell is happening inside of our brains that's causing us to feel absolutely miserable. So whichever one of you wants to talk about this, go for it. Cool. So I did a little dabbling into this, and there is a lot of research on this, which is always yeah. a great thing to have. Um, so uh, when looking into neurological conditions like this, there's several different ways you can approach this. And all of this I'm finding from this wonderful review I found titled... Understanding Peripartum Depression Through Neuroimaging, a Review of Structural, Functional Connectivity, and Molecular Imaging Research. Uh, so that's really hitting it from all sides. Structural, that is, how is the brain itself, the gray matter of the brain, changing during this phenomenon? Functional is kind of the more how are, it's more of the psychological side. How are women reacting to this? What are the behavioral uh, changes that go along with this, as well as molecular. So what's happening at the very nitty gritty in the cell? How is this affecting the function of the brain at a molecular level? So one of the things you asked was, what changes are happening in brain and are these changes permanent? And one of these studies, which was listed in this review, uh, Folks, remember, a review paper is an amalgamation of many scientific studies. So it's calling back to data from a variety of researchers and kind of just synthesizing it all together to get the big picture of what's going on for a certain phenomenon. So one of the studies referenced in this review was uh, Hokazima et al. 2017. Uh, which did a functional MRI imaging, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is a way of looking at what's going on in the brain by looking at where is blood flowing in the brain. And we can look at this in real time. You have, uh, in this case, you have women sit in this huge magnetic chamber and you can literally read what's going on in their brain at the level of blood flow. And what they found was in postpartum scans versus prepartum scans, there was a general downturn 
and the gray matter volume, the gray matter is just the structural uh, stuff of the brain that is your actual brain cells in several regions of the brain. And I'm not super up on my neuroanatomy. So it was anterior and posterior midline and the, at the bilateral prefrontal cortex, there was a decrease in gray matter, which if we go by a paradigm where like volume of gray matter to intellectual capability is a one-to-one ratio, which is not the case, you would think, oh, that's really bad. But since it's not like that, it's a lot harder to um, parse these results. But what was, was really interesting was they looked at these same women two years after they had given birth. And all of those changes in gray matter volume had persisted, meaning they had not gone back to what they were in the prepartum scan. So that, to answer the second part of your question, is it permanent? It seems like it might be. It hasn't wow. gone back up to prepartum stages. Um, once again, this is only one metric of measuring this though. This is just measuring the gray matter volume through an fMRI. Um, this doesn't go into any behavioral kind of metrics, any kind of like um, surveys or those kind of things are doing. Um, yeah, we're just talking about blood flow. Exactly. It was very yeah. important. Yeah. Um, Nor is it looking at molecular mechanisms, but yeah, that was one thing that suggested maybe some of it has a permanent um, manifestation, but the degree to which that will affect your behavior and personhood is still definitely up for, up for right. debate. Right. Yeah. And just so everyone knows to give a little bit more context and I'm sorry, I don't mean to breeze through these things. I think I'm just so used to thinking about this and talking about this because I'm pregnant right now, but um, there's a few different, like, I don't want to say there's a few different stages of postpartum depression, but there's a couple things and diagnoses that float around in that same space. Baby blues are really normal. They usually last for about two weeks or so after birth, and a, a mother may find herself to be weepy and over-emotional and or a little bit more irritable than usual. That is very, very normal. Postpartum depression, again, I want to make sure that we're removing the word fault from our vocabulary when we talk about these things. Postpartum depression is certainly not your fault, and it is very, very common. There is a much more extreme, and I might add a rare diagnosis called postpartum psychosis. That is when you are actually experiencing rage, like rage and rage blackouts. You are crying uncontrollably. You are completely unable to function. You hallucinate. Um, a lot of moms talk, well, actually not a lot, but more are starting to talk about hallucinating and how for the first few months after they brought their baby home, they would like wake up in the middle of the night, just like rifling through their beds. And their oh. husband would wake up and go, honey, what are you doing? And she's crying and screaming, the baby, the baby, the baby's in the bed. The baby is not in the bed. The baby's fast asleep in the bassinet next to them. But like, that is something that is not good. The hallucinations, oh, I wow. guess, are somewhat common. However, they say that if you cannot seem to calm, first of all, that is an immediate call to your doctor like the very next day that is an immediate call number one number two they say that if you cannot calm yourself down and rationalize with yourself or your partner cannot rationalize with you after like 10 minutes and you are just hysterical that's a 911 call and mm. it is nothing 
nothing, nothing to be ashamed of at at any level, whether it's baby blues or, or postpartum psychosis, none of these things are ever something to feel ashamed of, but it is your responsibility as the parent and as the adult to educate yourself about these different diagnoses and possibilities and then act on them. Make sure that you're doing something about them. And like Kevin said, you know, we're just talking about blood flow here. We haven't gotten into molecular bing bong and all that. Like this is, yeah, there is just so much that your body does after birth that you simply cannot control and probably have never experienced. And if you don't do something about it, as Kevin also shared, it is something that sticks with you likely for the rest of your life. It's only going to get worse. So make sure that you're taking very, very good care of yourselves. Have you guys ever heard of postpartum uh, psychosis? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, horrible. It's crazy. Oh, it's, it's insane. The brain is a very powerful thing. You know? I wonder if there's an evolutionary underpinning to that, that you would expect the child to be in physical contact with the mother just before there was anything like a bed or a crib that had right. ever been conceived of by a human mind. And well, that could be something like carrying over from that. It, I, I think that it may be, and this is only my mm. hypothesis. And again, I'm not a scientist, but um, we're going to be talking about this in a future episode um, regarding attachment parenting and that style. But parents who subscribe to attachment parenting are taking their belief system all the way back to our caveman and Neanderthal days when, yes, this is my baby that I had with this man, but we all live together in in a tribe, in a group. And so everyone is carrying everyone else's babies and everyone is breastfeeding everyone else's babies. And so really up until the late 1800s and early 1900s, infants especially were always carried very, very close. And it really wasn't until like, the colonial days that we saw women like sort of comfortable with putting their kids in something like a high chair so that they could stoke the fire and not like have a toddler dangling over an open flame while they're trying to make some dehydrated (laughs) peas and pheasants, you know? Um, But yes, that is absolutely an evolutionary thing that is ingrained in us from bazillions of years ago that the infant is always attached and you do see it in other developed countries as well as underdeveloped countries that carrying and uh, or call they call it wearing your baby is very very normal um and also new moms find that their babies have a hard time especially before six months old they have a really hard time falling asleep on a hard flat safe sleeping surface they fall asleep much faster and much better when they are being held by mom or dad right to the chest. So I think to answer your question, that is where all of this is coming from. But what a horrifying thing to have happen. I can't even, I I can't even imagine what that would be like. Um, Okay. So my second question is, hold on, I have to open up my email. Oh, here we go. All right. So this, okay. (laughs) Yeah, buddy. This, (laughs) This topic has been, um, a popular topic of conversation throughout the the parenting community. But up until a few years ago, it was more of an underground conversation. But now it is out in the open. It's being talked about by major news outlets. And that is the topic of consuming 
your own placenta. Now, listen, I do not plan on doing this, but I can absolutely see why some women have such an attachment to their placenta because on top of growing this baby, the other thing that absolutely kicked the shit out of me was growing this placenta. I literally had gotten over all of my pregnancy symptoms. And then I was talking to to Fifi. Well, you guys know Fifi Dubois, our drag queen Mm -hmm. at WISP. And she's like, so how are you doing? I'm like, you know what? I was feeling like shit. I didn't know why, but I did some research. And it turns out that this week is like my last week of a push to finish up my placenta. So that's why all of a sudden I'm now, what, 23 weeks, 22 weeks And I haven't felt nauseous or fatigued in ages. And all of a sudden, I'm taking naps and throwing up again. So there are some people out there that believe wholeheartedly and they subscribe to it that consuming your placenta after, obviously after birth, has major health benefits. They talk about how it can help with postpartum depression, how it can help with lactation and milk production. And... um. Kevin and Mike, I just want to know, based on your research, what are we looking at here? So, <clears throat> what are we looking at here? I don't know. This is like weird, if you ask me. But it, it's, you know, to each their own in the in a way. It but doesn't make much biological sense, though. It doesn't. And so I actually looked up. Well, yeah, I looked up and have a clinical trial. So it's a randomized, double-blind placebo-controlled study that looked at whether or not consuming um, steamed and dehydrated placenta capsules, which is the, I you know, apparently like the common way in which women go about yes, eating the exactly. placenta. Yeah, yeah. Yep, um, yep. The doctor so, takes it instantly and they, and you have to sign up ahead of time, but then mm-hmm. they put it in the biohazard bag. It goes off. It's, and I'm sorry, I didn't say that before. Yo, I'm not, I'm not suggesting hell? that women sit there and just eat their placenta while their baby's getting their first like <laughs> B12 or like rubella shot. No, no, that's not what I meant. But yeah, it gets sent off. It's dehydrated. It's put into capsules and lovingly promptly sent back to you so that you can take it like a pill. Anyways, yeah. Mike, oh, wow. keep going. Okay. So what this what the study did is look, you know, they, they gave some of the mothers their placenta pills and they gave another group like a pl- uh, placebo. And over the course of the three weeks postpartum, they measured levels of prolactin, which is um, a protein in the blood that is linked to the quality and quantity of breast milk. Um, so, I, you know, there's probably other studies that link that, but they looked at uh, plasma prolactin concentrations as well as the uh, neonatal weights. So, like, how heavy that baby was and also the health of the baby. And they saw that after three weeks, there was no statistical significance in prolactin levels or neonatal weight gains between the placenta group and the placebo group. So my one issue with this study, though, is that they only looked at 27 individuals. So very small group of people to actually study this within. But I think if it really, I mean, you could look at some of the figure, some of the figures, there was like 
no differences between either of the groups. Like, me, you know, like, even if you think by increasing uh, numbers of patients, you'd increase differences, um, you know, by sampling more of the population, but it, it didn't look like there was much, much to be said. Yeah, and I think that where this came from, at least in the conversations that I've either been involved with or been witness to is, quote, well, animals do it, dogs do it, cats do it after they give birth. Why shouldn't I? Because you're not a cat or a dog. Interesting. That must be a, that's, that I can explain. That's a nutritional, that's just because. What else does your dog eat? Fucking anything it can get its fucking hands yeah, exactly. on. It's yeah. purely because <laughs> they just eat anything they can because that's how animals in nature don't know where their next meal is coming from. And when that placenta is just sitting there, that's calories they otherwise might not get. Yeah. Right. For yeah. a human exactly. living in developed society, generally, that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, like, if people want to do that to get nutrients or something because they want to go on, like, a diet or something, I don't know. By all means, do it, but don't think it's going to improve your life or the life of the baby. There's nothing in it that wasn't already in your body before. You're not getting anything from it. It came from your body. And so, it, I don't know, it just seems very circular to me. And your body got rid of it in the second birth. The po- Wait, it's called post-birth? <laughs> Yeah. 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 After uh, you there is a YouTube baby, video going yeah, on. Yeah, out it goes. <laughs> did I talk about did I talk about this two episodes ago? About the woman who was giving birth in the river in like Virginia. What? No, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> What's the moral Whatever. of the story? Did the placenta come out and she put it in a Ziploc bag and ran back to her? No, because she was just (laughs) naked in the river with her, like, other kids around her. I don't know. It was, like, more of, like, a story. I've seen it. It's kind of insane. It's it's really insane. But women are are incredible. But I think, like, with that being said, women are incredible on their own. And we don't need to uh, eat our placenta. It's not going to have any benefits. Look, for all the women out there that do feel a very strong attachment to their placenta... I might offer that there's other options for you. A lot of women will then take their placenta and send it off to a company that um, will turn it into a tree for you so that you can plant like a beautiful rose bush or a tree, you know, just to, to remember that whole experience. Like there's other things that you can do with your placenta or most importantly, in my opinion, um, donate it to science. That's what's happening when, oh, when, yeah. When you have your placenta, because right after you give birth uh, vaginally, you continue to have contractions for a couple of hours in some cases, and that's very normal. And the reason is because you need to also give birth to your placenta. Your placenta, it's really important to make sure they get the whole placenta out so that, like Mike and Kevin brought up in the first episode, you don't experience necrosis of the womb, which is really, really, really bad. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it goes into a biohazard bag but like that's i mean mike and kev would know like that's going straight to a lab so that 
medical students or, or uh, residents, first year residents or whatever, can do some research and, and look at it under a microscope and learn from because your placenta. That's how all so, science is done. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, just don't, don't think that it's just going to get like thrown away and it's never going to get used again. Your placenta will do good either as a tree or in the scientific community or whatever. So, okay. Here's an interesting one, and uh, a lot of people don't know this, but I want to ask you guys, why do women who are breastfeeding experience leaking breasts when they hear literally any child cry? It doesn't even have to be theirs. It can be a child, in, in, they can hear a cry, they can see a child in a movie, they can be out at the grocery store and a child runs past them. And the boobs just instantly start leaking. Why is that? Kevin, I yeah. want you to explain this, but, well, I don't I'm know. Sure. Do you want to explain uh, it? Yeah, I'm sure we, we have come to the precise we, thing to say. Yeah, but can, I just want to, I want to say this in a very, very scientific way. Uh, okay. So, so the, the response that Sam was talking about in terms of, a you know, hearing a baby cry that's not your own and the... Uh, boobs lactating is called the neuroendocrine control of the milk ejection reflex. And that was just pretty much it. Kevin, go ahead. Explain. <laughs> well, I didn't even go that far <laughs> to oh. look at any particular uh, nomenclature, but I would hazard to take a bet that this is something that predates humans even being humans because yeah, all yeah. mammals produce milk and feed their offspring via milk. And so that reaction to hearing this crying and having that be a one-to-one um, relationship with the production of milk and the, the excretion of it has to go back way deeper evolutionarily than human beings, than even higher primates. This probably goes down to, you know, to the most, the most lesser rodents. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, essentially, which are the most basal mammals, essentially. Um, and it doesn't really have to do anything with like uh, population or herd control because yes, most, ma- um, some mammals live in, you know, social societies like us. But a lot of them don't, uh, but they all do pr- produce milk. And therefore, that hearing a child cry to producing milk linkage is so fundamental that we even do see they see a child on TV crying and this happens. It's just so hardwired that that's why it doesn't really have anything to do with human evolution, per se. It's more like a mammalian level phenomenon. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and a lot of women feel so embarrassed by this and they don't realize this. And again, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just, you literally cannot help it. So, all right. Now, we're wired to do it. Exactly. It's just one of those things. Just wear some breast pads and keep doing your grocery shopping and then get home and take a shower. You'll be fine. So, the reason that we're even doing this series in the first place is not only because I'm pregnant, but because I stumbled across what I found to be a really interesting paper from your current alma mater, Arizona State University, Uh talking about, (laughs) talking about the lasting either benefits or hindrances from pregnancy as it pertains to the mom. So 
we talked earlier about postpartum depression and how unfortunately the effects, not even with postpartum, but the effects of just childbearing and childbirth, they do stick with you for the rest of your life. And so up until now, there is some evidence to suggest that you are less likely to have breast cancer if you were able to get pregnant and successfully carry to term, and especially if you were to breastfeed. But I want to dive a little bit deeper than that. So are there any health benefits and or risks after pregnancy, but specifically as it pertains to either autoimmune diseases, cancers, or other vital functions such as blood pressure and blood sugar? And specifically, do fetal cells help with all of this, or do they hinder? Uh. <laughs> now, this was not your research. This was not your paper. This was not your yeah. study. It's worth notating. But what do you guys think? From your research and from your conversations, what are your thoughts? I couldn't find a ton on this, especially on the point of the autoimmune diseases. Most things that I found were uh, vascular in nature, like blood flow disorders mm -hmm. could, um, uh, happen like high blood pressure, um, a rare, but I'm reading from the Mayo clinic website, a rare, but serious condition that occurs when amniotic fluid or fetal material enters the mother's bloodstream, amniotic fluid embolism, which could have the same effect as like a heart attack. Um, when a, uh, when a vein is completely clogged with something else that's not blood or plasma. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't begin to create a direct linkage between these syndromes. It's very complex. Everything it, that goes certainly... with pregnancy. Yeah. That's why I never took physiology. That's beyond me. Yeah. It's a wild time. And so I do know that there, there is absolutely scientific evidence to prove that when a woman is pregnant, if she experiences some sort of like tissue damage, I believe it is the baby will automatically send like white blood cells along with the, the woman's body, but the baby will send white blood cells too to heal the mother. But that's when they're in utero, you know? So it's like, you know, what does happen after birth? It's just so, again, the body is so diverse wow, and there's so many really different circumstances and environmental factors that it's so hard to say, even now in 2021, if, there would be some, some serious benefits. And like I said, with the breast cancer thing, there's a little bit of research to substantiate that, but it's not enough that every single person is talking about it. And now everyone is trying to get pregnant to reduce huh. the risk of having breast cancer, right? Oh, reduces and, the risk of breast cancer. Yes. It reduces the risk of breast cancer. And unfortunately, a lot of the women that get breast cancer are mothers. Yeah. Who have biological children and who breastfed. So, yeah, it's just, I don't know. And, and this is why I love science because you guys are always striving to find the answers. But a lot of these things, they just take, like Mike said, they take a bigger sample size and they take more time. Yeah, they're research. so complex. They're nearly intractable at times. Like the things, the number of things that can cause cancer is so diverse that even getting yeah. to a single mechanism and getting to a single action that could mitigate that mechanism is sometimes like, and if you were to just do this one action differently than you had, that might mitigate your risk so slightly that it wouldn't even be worth doing. Right. 
Right. So, all right. My last question is this, and it has to do with cord blood. This is something that's sort of new, um, but it's gotten itself to a point in terms of popularity and development that it is both public and privatized. So the argument here is that saving some of your baby's cord blood could potentially in the future help to dramatic statement save their life if the if the child has a a leukemia diagnosis or lymphoma or they have cerebral palsy or something like that it is said at this point that the stem cells extracted from the core blood could absolutely be there uh to help the child overcome now here's the complication is that right now Research has only taken us 20 years in the future, which is still substantial and incredible in and of itself. But what I mean by that is after 20 years, science has not yet figured out how to maintain the viability of stem cells past 20 years. Now, when I, so let's see, and and I don't want to give away the name of one person because they have not given me permission, but I did have someone that I know who was diagnosed with lymphoma, and I believe we were 20 at the time, 21, 2021, I want to say 21. And then, of course, my audience knows my friend Nicole from our second episode of When I Knew and When I Knew I Had Cancer, who was diagnosed with leukemia out of absolutely thin air. And I believe Nicole was 22 or 23. So that then poses the problem because we do biologically find ourselves at risk for a new slew of diseases in our early 20s. And then, of course, we know the frontal lobe fully develops at 25, which hopefully helps out a lot of us, but (laughs) not all of us. Mm -hmm. But um, But anyways, the argument here is like, if it's not going to be viable past the age of 20, is it worth the cost? So here are your two options with cord blood. First of all, the hospital will not facilitate this. You need to find an external source, work with them. Yeah. So no, the hospital will gather. They will gather the blood, but they're not the ones. Oh, they won't store it. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, they They won't won't store it. They won't tell you what to do. They will not consult you. They won't do anything other than just collect it. So you can either opt to store your cord blood in a public cord blood facility, which is the exact same thing as giving blood. It means that it will be free or at a very, very low charge to you to essentially donate your cord blood. But it also means that when you need it, it won't be there. Because if your core blood is a genetic match for someone else who needs it first, they're going to get it. Or if scientists want to look at core blood specifically from a baby with this blood type born at this time, blah, 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 off it goes. So the hope is that if you do it publicly, there will be another baby somewhere else that will be a match for your baby, but it's not a guarantee. If you want to store your cord blood privately, you're looking at a fee of anywhere from $1,300 to $3,200 just to get your cord blood in. And then you will have an annual fee on top of that between $150 and $350. This is on average, of course. Um, And that's what it costs to store it every year. However, if the cord blood bank calls you and says, hey, How's it going? Merry Christmas. We're closing. 
it's up to you to find a new bank that will accept your blood. So it can be a financial and logistical nightmare. Now, let's talk just about cord blood. Mike and Kevin, are there real benefits to cord blood? And I guess this would poke right into stem cell. Is there a real benefit for keeping that around? Or is this just one of those scare tactics that we were kind of talking about in the last episode where parents are, are scared into thinking, if I don't do this, I am not a good parent. Talk to me about that. Okay. I wouldn't. That last statement schooled us. Yeah. yeah, No. Yeah. That last statement, I would say, no, it's not a difference between being a good parent and a bad parent. Mm -hmm. However, from a medical standpoint, having hematopoietic stem cells from a patient is a slam dunk in the case that they do have leukemia. So to back it up, leukemia is a a disorder, a a cancer of the blood. So your blood cells actually are cancerous and that can cause all sorts of problems. But what we may not know is that blood cells actually originate from the bone marrow. And so one of the treatments for leukemia is an irradiation treatment, which actually destroys these cancerous cells inside the bone marrow. Now, what hematopoietic stem cells from the cord blood can do is directly replenish the lost uh, bone marrow. So if you have that in the utterly life-shattering event that you are diagnosed with leukemia, having that cord blood around is like a slam dunk. There could be no better situation. Now, you have to weigh that with all those... the. the pain in the acid is to maintain that, which basically means keeping them under liquid nitrogen for years, for decades, essentially. And I'm surprised that that 20 year limit is actually a thing. It's it's so weird because they're literally doing nothing when they're at minus, I believe it's like 230 Celsius. Like they can't physically be doing any kind of biological processes in the right. fact that you can bring them back before 20 years, but not after that. That's very strange. And that's, I'm sure, just an engineering problem that will probably get worked out at some point. That I, I have a hard I time imagine that, so. that that's a physical, that's a biological limit for some reason. Yeah. The, um, and that's the information that I received from my doctor was, hey, you know, here we are in 2021, the likelihood of the longevity being increased within your baby's, you know, first bit of their lifetime is very high. But as of right now, this is the data that is being shared with us. So I, mm-hmm. I think that they could definitely stretch it out. But right now, I think they're saying 20 years to be safe. Because again, there aren't a lot of cord blood banks out there. That's so, insane. Yeah. There aren't? Fuck, dude, Mike, let's go start a business. This is so <laughs> easy. Done. Like, doing, you just explained that to me, that one of these would close. Like, how? This is literally so yeah. fucking easy from, like, a, a technical standpoint. Yeah, but then, uh, uh, you know, as you're aware... Just because you're a brilliant scientist does not mean that you're a brilliant business person. And I'm sure it yeah. probably has something to do <laughs> no, with that. And then you're also dealing person. with state regulations, state to state, depending on where you decide to set up shop and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's a very political conversation. And I think that is really why the the water just gets muddy. Because uh, it's everything has been politicized. That's the problem. Again, yeah, let's move not, to Europe. Let's, it's let's not go. from like aborted fetal tissue. It's literally from a child from that's you. been born. Right. But it's the same thing as aborted fetal tissue. It's the stem cells that you want to get in. That's present in the cord blood. 
it's funny. Like all of the arguments against fetal tissue are moot in this situation. Mm-hmm. Yep. So for those to still be used, it's really ridiculous. Well, then you have these families that are faced with these absolutely horrific diagnoses. And then the mother and father very quickly scramble to try and get pregnant again with the hopes that that younger sibling will be a match for their older siblings so that they can then save their lives. And, you know, of course I don't, I don't ever want to, (sighs) I don't ever want to boil it down to, we only had you because we needed you to save your brother's life or your sister's life. Every child is a precious gift. And I'm sure that, I mean, just having a child that is a perfect genetic match, like you said, Kevin, what a slam dunk, but more so just adding to your family is such a joy. But if we're going to look at it scientifically, you know, that's, that's why a lot of these parents will kind of scramble to do that. So, all right. So the jury's. What is the morals behind that though? Yeah. Like, I I think that's, I mean. I don't know. uh, Here's something I don't condone but here is a hypothetical it might work situation is that you get pregnant and have the earliest term abortion you could possibly have and collect that fetal tissue and then that would yeah i know that's certainly not what's happening i'm speaking purely from a hypothetical standpoint this might work i'm not saying this is something that is morally defensible no but Uh, that's that's why this is such a politically charged conversation as is every conversation around stem cell research, you've got these, these super, super religious people who feel very strongly that no human deserves to quote, play God. But then you've got these scientists, millions of scientists from around the world that are like, we are not trying to play God. What we are trying to say is that a creator of some sort, along with evolution, stardust, sunlight, and water, has given us the ability to develop to this point where we can conduct the research and say, no, I don't want to clone 50 of the same sheep. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is save lives. This is not a religious conversation, but that's why everything is so freaking politicized nowadays. And that's why we're seeing such you know, I talk about this every week on at the, I call them my show at the buck crack, but it's called at the newsstand. <laughs> I'm always like, James, I have to record at the buck crack. Leave me alone. But I do. I talk about this on at the buck crack and it's just everything nowadays. Like people are just so, so sensitive and it's literally science and, and education and scholars against everyone else. And uh, you know, I, I against religion, against politics, against money, against everyone else. And then there's the people like me who aren't involved in either sitting in the middle going, well, shouldn't we probably just listen to the scientists? Because they're the ones that are seeing this stuff. And they're the ones that are doing the math. They can quantify it. Like, shouldn't we just... Okay. No. All right. I'll just. We should. There. We should. You know. I'll just vote. I'll just. We you know, really appreciate that, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, I, you know, and that's 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 where we're at. You know, that's where we were at, even twenty years ago with science, and now that's that's where it's twenty twenty one. The incredible things that your community is doing across the spectrum. Like, we really just need to be listening to scientists at this point. Um, and I respect everyone's religion, and I respect everyone's you know motivators from you know, deep inside their hearts, as long as they're well-intended, like, I respect that. But facts are facts. And I understand that you want to hold a book very close to your heart, and you want to preach the word of someone 
that gives your life meaning. <clears throat> but scientists are here to literally help give us our lives back, extend our lives. Like, that's just what it is. But anyways, ooh, we're getting, yeah. <laughs> we're getting heated. But okay, so it is- Wait, 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 I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna add quickly to what you just said, how we should trust the scientists. I think to broaden that, we should be trusting experts. You yes. know, people spend years of their lives in whatever field doing something and they've done they done it more than other people and they know what to do in specific situations. Scientists, you know, things become a little bit more niche and like narrow and what we know a lot about. But, yeah, I think expertise It's like, what is it? Respecting your elders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I we, we need to go back to the olden days and honestly. <laughs> Well, not all of our elders. I'm very excited for the boomers to be to be out of the corporate world and out of uh, out of everyone's pockets and coming out from behind the you know the shadows. I can't wait for that to be done and over with. But uh, but anyway, so yeah, so core blood slam dunk. I mean, look, it's something that my husband and I are looking into right now, and um, it's definitely a financial investment, especially that it should be a public. It should be a public service, though. It that's, should be. Yeah, yeah. that's a public health measure. Like that's a no brainer. Right. And but it's not for the boomers in Congress, like you just said. Right. Yeah. No, and and it is like the or problem with this them. is you do have the option to donate your cord blood to a public cord blood bank, which is great. But how many people are actually doing that right now? And then because this hasn't been going on for very long. Give me the numbers. What are the statistics? Let's say that I do run into a horrible problem six years from now. Statistically, what is the likelihood of me finding a match? And what are these public core blood banks doing in the meantime to educate the public regarding the work that they're doing and advocate for getting more and more people to donate cord blood? That's what I want to see. You know, if from from a public institution, and and if it was a well oiled machine, and I have to do a little bit more research, but if it proved to be a well oiled machine, then hell yeah, I'd be all for it. But right now, it seems like something that people are just kind of getting on board with, and that's why I'm like, crap, I kind of have no option but to do private. Is that really? Can I afford it initially? And is that something that I want to pay for every single year? Um, the answer, of course, is if I can, absolutely yes. But I've really got to look at my my financial situation. And uh, that means also looking at the job market and job security for both myself and my husband. That means looking at our investments. That means that means a lot of things. Like, yeah, you might be sitting there like, oh, it's just 350 bucks. Um, that's a lot of money. Yeah, on top. So, yeah. Yeah. So any hoodles. Well, guys, uh, thank you very much for joining me again. And all of the listeners out there, thank you for all of your positive feedback. And thank you for sharing the episodes. And I, it's just so great that everyone is really interested in this conversation. On our next episode, Mike, Kevin, and I are going to talk about childhood development, which is really my area of expertise. That's what I went to school for. And talking about attachment parenting versus non-attachment parenting. And is there a benefit to Maria Montessori versus, you know, someone else's style of teaching? What is happening in the brains of these children? And how can we give them the best leg up? And I also will probably be touching a little bit on, and Mike and Kevin don't know this, so I'm telling them now, 
standardized testing. Like, does standardized nice. testing help? Oh. You oh, know, I should talk about dig that. Dig in on this shit. Hell <laughs> or yeah. is it one of those things that, again, is just there to make us all feel like absolute steaming piles of shit no if we letter. don't make the mark? So... You can check us out online. It's WISP.us. Again, thanks so much for joining us and tuning in. We love having you here. From Whatever You Say Productions, my name is Samantha. My name is Mike. (laughs) 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 Wait, okay. My name is Mike. And I'm Kevin. Bye. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. (laughs)